my top priorities, they, they really fall into three buckets, um, housing, water, and education. It's kind of terrifying, if I'm being totally honest, to be on this side of the, of the government, um, to wonder what things are going to come down and, and be handed to us that, that we have to then implement. Lawmakers might get all the attention this time of year, but let's not forget, everything they do has to go through the executive branch. I'm Sean Higgins. And I'm Sage Miller. This week on State Street, Governor Spencer Cox and Lieutenant Governor Deidre Henderson. We got the chance to sit down with them both just before the session started to talk a little bit about their priorities this year. Even though it's state legislators that write and pass bills, that doesn't mean Cox and Henderson don't have agendas of their own. And both of them were state lawmakers before coming to the executive branch. We made it through our first week of the legislative session. It really gave me those first week of school vibes, especially day one. Oh, I strategically picked out my outfit, too. Had to make sure I looked fresh, you know? So fresh. I thought you looked great, by the way. So official, so dignified. So fresh and so clean, clean. And Sean, we totally look like siblings in every photo we've taken together. It's really weird, isn't it? And we are, in fact, just reporting partners. And I gotta say, there's no other person I'd rather navigate the choppy waters of the Utah legislature with. Aw, me too. On to the juicy stuff. We're going to be looking at some of the governor and lieutenant governor's top priorities for this legislative session. And they do seem to line up with what the legislature has in mind. Mostly. We heard from House Speaker Brad Wilson and Senate President Stuart Adams that water, housing and education are all big topics of conversation this session. Here's Wilson. There are three policy areas in particular that will require our best thinking, our honest debate and our determination to seize the opportunity and meet the challenges before us. First, stewardship, particularly of our water, our public lands and Utah's energy. Second, affordability as it relates to housing, taxes, and government overreach. And third, investment, in particular in our infrastructure, our transportation, and education. But even with harmonious agendas, the governor said himself that it's unlikely he'll get everything on his wish list. During the legislative session, things can start to feel a little jargony. Motion this, bill number that. But lawmakers are confronted with some really heavy topics. One thing Lieutenant Governor Henderson has had on her mind is how to address domestic violence. That topic hits close to home for her. I have a very personal connection to this issue. Um, in August, last August, my 35-year-old cousin, Mandy Maine, was... Um, ambushed and gunned down by her ex-husband while she waited for her bus um, on her way to work one morning. And uh, this was shocking and horrible for our family, but looking at what happened with Mandy and what happened with Taylor, her ex-husband, um, was very illuminating as uh, someone, a state official, um, it was very eye-opening to me and to lots of people showing us where the gaps, specifically where are some of the big gaps in our system are. 
Henderson says right now, law enforcement and judges across the state are focused more on individual incidents and not patterns of abuse that might be forming. She says she wants to change that. It's hard for me to say if this one thing were in place, it would have saved my cousin's life, it would have saved Mandy. I don't know. Sometimes there's nothing we can do, but I do know that we can do much better and we must do much better. Too often right now, law enforcement, judges, others are looking at these incidents often as single incidents that maybe don't look all that bad just on their own. But the vast majority of uh, intimate partner homicides are, the, the, the victims are killed by people who have had previous interactions with law enforcement. So we need to have that information for law enforcement and the judiciary to make the decisions that they need to make. So Henderson went back to her lawmaking roots. She was a state senator herself for eight years and built a lot of relationships in that time. She corralled a bunch of stakeholders, including law enforcement, elected officials, and her aunt and uncle. Together, they tried to figure out what the state could do to address domestic violence, specifically intimate partner homicide. Those talks ended with a piece of legislation called SB 117. It aims to increase access and funding to victim services and give law enforcement more tools to effectively do their jobs. It does two main things. Of course, there are many components to these main things. But the first thing that it does is require law enforcement to conduct a lethality assessment anytime they go to a domestic violence call where, where intimate partners are involved. And, um, and then... Depending on the outcome of that assessment, there's just simple questions that are asked. If uh, certain answers are provided um, to certain questions, that automatically triggers law enforcement to be required to connect the victim to victim services um, for, for better information. So that's the first piece, requiring the lethality assessment and requiring uh, law enforcement to connect the victim to victim services. The second piece, which I think is going to be a game changer, is um, creating data sharing, data collection. So law enforcement would have to send the results of these LAPS, the lethality assessment protocol, they're called LAPS, send those to the state for SIAC to do analysis and threat assessments and um, get information that is then shared with law enforcement throughout the state so they can know if this is just a single incident that's happening or if this is an escalation, if this is part of an ongoing pattern. There is also another bill that addresses domestic violence. HB 43 creates the Domestic Violence Data Task Force. It will compile and distribute data collected from those lethality assessments we heard Henderson mention. The lieutenant governor is throwing her support behind it. That legislation has passed the House and is moving on to the Senate. For Governor Cox, housing is near the top of his list of priorities. He's asking for $150 million in next year's budget to go towards affordable housing projects throughout the state. Last year, the legislature set aside $55 million for those projects, and people wanted in. There was a staggering $168 million worth of applications for that money. So supply, demand, you get the idea. Yeah, not everybody got their wish list that time around. Cox is also asking for nearly $3 million for rural and housing rehabilitation projects. The governor says he's hoping for a broad approach to housing affordability. We're asking for increases in deeply affordable housing. Uh, really, the focus is on increasing supply to decrease the price of housing. And so we're, we're looking at projects that will help make uh, new housing easier, um, infrastructure investments in, into lots that are already permitted for housing but don't have the infrastructure to build housing. 
The legislature is currently looking at property tax changes for low-income Utahns and changes to areas called Housing and Transit Reinvestment Zones. It's also called an HTRZ, and it's a tool that local governments can use to encourage development in areas that are close to public transit. Pretty neat. As far as the funding Cox is asking for is concerned, that's something the legislature decides when it crafts the state budget. We'll keep an eye out for that a little later in the session. We're only a weekend after all. When it comes to education, things get a little more complicated between the governor and the legislature. This year's bill to give Utah teachers a raise has been coupled with school choice, commonly referred to as a voucher program. It's called the Utah Fits All Scholarship Program, and supporters say it would allow parents to pursue the education they think is best for their children. A school voucher bill failed last year, thanks in no small part to a veto threat from Cox, who wanted to see teachers get a pay bump first. He says he doesn't want school choice to be at the expense of public education. I've been supportive of school choice, and I think it's important, but you can't hurt public schools. You can't say, well, we want competition, but we're going to tie both hands behind your back. Utah teachers would love a raise, but the largest teacher union in the state opposes this bill. The Utah Education Association says raises and vouchers are completely separate issues and should be debated and voted on that way. The bill was passed out of the House last week and now heads to the Senate. The issues of LGBTQ rights and health care are also something the governor told us he has his eyes on. Last year, Cox vetoed a controversial bill banning transgender girls in school sports, but that veto was later overturned by the legislature. We saw that last year, the very last night of the session. I was very disappointed. I wrote five pages about the, the problems I had with, uh, with the way that happened and the decision. This year, there are a few bills dealing with transgender youth. The big one is SB 16, sponsored by Republican Senator Mike Kennedy. It bans gender-affirming surgery and puberty blockers for minors. Cox says these issues are a little more complicated for him this year. This is a really hard one. Um, certainly, we, we have to look at the science. We have seen on, on this issue um, other countries, some European countries, certainly some other states, who are, are pushing pause and kind of looking back and making sure that we understand what the long-term results of these drugs and these procedures are and the effects that they will have. And so I'm trying to keep an open mind and, uh, and trying to look at the research and try to take the emotions out of it. Cox has already said he won't veto SB 16. The Senate approved the bill late last week. It now heads to the House for final consideration. It's worth noting that the committee hearing on SB 16 was jam-packed. Emotions were high. That emotion was carried onto the Senate floor last week. Republican Senator Daniel Thatcher gave a powerful testimony before voting no on the bill. He was the only Republican that did. We're going to take a quick break, but when we're back, should Utahns get to ride public transit for free for a whole year? Governor Cox certainly thinks so. You're listening to State Street. Support for State Street comes from the Hinckley Report podcast, a weekly roundtable discussion about the biggest political headlines in the Beehive State. Find new episodes of PBS Utah's The Hinckley Report every Friday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Great Salt Lake has reached a record low. With drought, climate change, and population growth, how can Utah better support its critical body of water? 
KUER is a member of the Great Salt Lake Collaborative. It's a group of news and nonprofit organizations engaging and informing the public about the crisis facing Great Salt Lake. We're also focused on solutions journalism. That means we're not just talking about the problem, we're also asking what can be done before it's too late. Learn more at greatsaltlakenews.org. Welcome back to State Street. I'm Sage Miller. And I'm Sean Higgins. We're chatting executive priorities this legislative session. Sage, question for you. How often do you ride the bus? Definitely less than you, Sean. That's for sure. I would probably ride it more, though, if I knew how to read a map. I always end up on the wrong bus. I really think taking the bus or the train is a cool way to just chill out and get where you need to go. Governor Cox thinks so, too, and wants to make it free for a year to the tune of $25 million. I will definitely be saving a seat for the governor on the bus. So in the grand scheme of things, $25 million sounds like a bit of a drop in the bucket. It kind of is. Cox's entire proposed state budget is over $28 billion. Billion with a B. But it does sound like some lawmakers are not as enthusiastic about the proposal as the governor is, right? You can't win them all, am I right? But yes, House leadership signaled they did not support free fare for a year, at least right now. House Majority Leader Mike Schultz said before the session that he didn't see much support from it from his colleagues. Schultz added that transit is already subsidized and people should continue to pay for the bus. Cox has some thoughts on that. I, I hear, you know, well, we, we, we're subsidizing transit too much. I, I'm like, well, do, do you understand how much we're subsidizing roads, right? I, I mean, we're taking a tremendous amount of money out of the general fund uh, to, uh, to subsidize the widening of I-15 and other roads throughout the state. And, and we try it. Um, it's not that expensive in the grand scheme of things, looking at the overall budget. But there could be a little wiggle room. Speaker Wilson mentioned investing in transportation and infrastructure as one of his key areas of focus during his welcome speech last week. But, and I know we're sounding like a broken record, just like the money for affordable housing, we don't know how much money gets set aside for transit until the budget is released. Okay, the topic of abortion has taken up a lot of room since Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court last June. Governor Cox and Lieutenant Governor Henderson definitely don't shy away from their pro-life beliefs. Henderson says the situation now is an opportunity for Utah to bolster things like access to contraceptives and pre- and postnatal care. Well, Utah has always been a pro-life state. I think this is a really good opportunity for us, um, despite any of the laws that might change or not change around abortion to show that we're pro-life by making it uh, a priority for us to ensure that the state's not getting in the way. Uh, women can have control over, uh, over their over birth control. Um, I think we need to, to look at policies surrounding birth control. Uh, we need to look at policies surrounding um, access to medical care. Uh, for, for pregnant women, um, especially in rural Utah, we, we have very little access to prenatal medical care uh, for women in rural Utah, um, expanding the um, postpartum Medicaid for women from 60 days to a year. I think that's something that we can do that is, is uh, supportive of women. And, and making it clear that we want women to have, be able to have children when and if they want to. And there are a lot of ways uh, to get from here to there. Um, and I don't see our state legislature changing um, their minds on abortion. 
After the Supreme Court ruling, Utah wasted no time implementing its trigger law. That bans nearly all elective abortions in the state. The law was later challenged in court and is currently blocked by a court-issued injunction. That injunction is now in the legislature's crosshairs. A joint resolution by Representative Brady Brammer could change the rules of injunctions. And that case would have to be refiled. Next up, water. I'm going to step back and let resident water expert Sage take the lead on this one. Wow. The highest of compliments. I'll take it. The legislature and Governor Cox say they are very adamant about preserving this precious resource. So if you don't know, Utah is in the midst of a mega drought. Even with the immense amount of snow and rain falling from the sky this winter, it isn't enough to lift us out of it. We do live in a desert after all. The Colorado River is depleting at a rapid rate. State reservoir levels are low, too, and a new study out of BYU warns the Great Salt Lake could dry up completely in five years if there isn't bold and decisive action to get water into the lake. Precisely. It's not looking great. But the legislature has taken some action. They passed a lot of water bills last year. This year, Cox said he'd like to see money go towards incentivizing farmers and ranchers to use less water. He'd also like to see more water make its way to the thirsty Great Salt Lake. And so now it's really about kind of doubling down on the changes that we made last year. Significant investments in a couple areas. That pr- probably the biggest would be around agriculture, reduction in, in water use. So ag optimization, uh, being able to use less water for our, our, our farmlands. And, and then getting water rights to the Great Salt Lake. Um, making sure, again, this is a, something new, something that's never happened before. But, but a really unique opportunity to get new water to the lake. And, and make sure that we preserve that resource. So we all remember those school projects where we learned about the water cycle, but how do you actually get water to the Great Salt Lake policy-wise? Great question. I'd love to tell you. There are two big pieces of legislation last session that got people amped. The first was a big overhaul to water law. HB 33 allowed sovereign lands like Great Salt Lake to hold water rights. The second created a $40 million trust to get water to the lake. And Cox would like to see some of that $40 million spent on purchasing water rights for the Great Salt Lake. But it's a little bit more complicated than that. It always is, isn't it? Absolutely. There's a really old law in the books, like back when Utah first became a state law. Essentially, there's a priority list for water rights. Those who bought a water right first have access to the water first. It's coined first in time, first in right. Some of the first people to get water rights in Utah were, unsurprisingly, farmers and ranchers. Here's the too-long-didn't-read version. If Great Salt Lake gets a new-ish water right, it'll be at the bottom of that priority list. In order to make sure water actually flows to Great Salt Lake, it needs priority water rights. I asked Cox what that $40 million trust is trying to buy. It depends on on those water rights and how we're able to obtain those water rights. So um, new water rights obviously are are different, but part of this is getting more money. We did $40 last year uh, to Nature Conservancy and uh, and to the Audubon Society. More there as well to purchase, lease uh, existing water rights that are higher up the the food chain and, and making sure we get that water to the end of the row. In other words, stakeholders are working on it. Yep, and they're trying to work on it very quickly. We mentioned earlier in the show that the priorities of Cox and Henderson actually align pretty nicely with the legislatures, with a couple key exceptions. 
Cox sounds a little more skeptical of school choice than some lawmakers probably like, and he faces an uphill battle for his free transit proposal. He'll also probably have to do some serious negotiating to get a number close to his $150 million ask for affordable housing. And from conversations we've had with sources on the Hill, there's a lot of support for the domestic violence bill Henderson helped craft. Okay, I know a lot of people are probably wondering this, so I'm just going to say it. How did Democrats fit into all of this? The short answer is not very well. Hello, supermajority, which actually grew this session, if you can believe it or not. But you've got Cox and Henderson, both Republicans, and the House and Senate are also Republican supermajorities. So the Dems don't have much of a say when it comes to these more divisive issues. That means the mitigating factor will be Governor Cox, who can veto bills he thinks are too extreme or just don't work right now. But in a supermajority, a veto can be overridden. We saw that last year with the transgender sports bill. And we touched on it some, but other bills related to transgender youth have arrived. That's a topic we'll tackle more in depth next week. All right. Week one was a whirlwind. The legislature wasted no time getting down to business. Some bills that were worked out in the interim session were passed right away, and we saw some high-profile bills dealing with education and trans health care get committee hearings and move to the floor for full votes. Governor Cox also gave his State of the State address, where he laid out his vision for 2023, which, to no one's surprise, featured a lot of what we talked about today. And we're only getting started. Can I just say thank heavens for cold brew and Cheez-Its? Have you noticed you can never just eat one Cheez-It? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's actually a law. But that does it for this episode of State Street. I'm Sage Miller. And I'm Sean Higgins. The show's executive producer is Caroline Ballard. Editing and production support comes from David Childs and KWR News Director Elaine Clark, also the bringer of the Cheez-Its. And a goddess in my eyes. Our digital team includes Jim Hill, Renee Bright, Raquel Davis, and Eleanor Gomberg. State Street is a production of KUER. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. It helps other listeners find State Street. See you next week. The legislature is currently looking at property tax... Take three. From KUER.